Love getting your Legend of the Five Rings podcast fix? Head to patreon.com slash strangeassembly to find out how you can support the show. This is Strange Assembly episode 173, Scorpion Fan Service. All right, Fred. Now, if I recall correctly, the last time I called an episode X-Clan fan service, it ended up consisting of me griping about the clan for half of the episode. So do you think I should stick with that again with the Scorpion? Or, uh, I mean, when you say Scorpion fan service, it certainly conjures a certain image in people's minds. And since this is an audio podcast, we won't be able to do that. No, no, there will be no need to, for example, retroactively edit card art to make it less prurient. Yeah. Although that only happened the once that I know of. I am, as always, Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Fred Wan. Hey. Fred, for those of you who have been listening for a while, probably know, is the Legend of the Five Rings continuity editor and a member of the story team, so we will, surprise, surprise, be talking about... Legend of the Five Rings story things today. Uh, in particular, this is going to be a kind of episode that we have not done in a while, which is sort of a going back into the past and looking at some things that have happened in the story before and some just general storyline issues. So I'll, I'll just give you an advance warning if you're looking for me to plumb Fred for details about Onyx Edition. This is not the episode you want to listen to. I'll have to sort of work that out later. Yep. But before we get into it, let me uh, remind our listeners they can visit us at strangeassembly.com. You can download more episodes of the podcast there or on iTunes or Stitcher. And, of course, if you happen to visit us on iTunes or Stitcher, feel free to leave us a rating. That helps other people find the show. But our, our first topic today, Fred, is about the Scorpion, and it is a a generic sort of one, and that is, what is the, I don't want to say role or purpose, because I, I people like to use those words, and I'm not a big fan of them with regards to, to what the clans are, but what is the identity of the Scorpion, good guys versus bad guys, how much are they villains, how much are they not villains, how much are they anti-heroes, and how is how they operate different from the other clans? For example, some people would say that the Scorpion are pure and noble souls at heart that are are really just truly willing to give everything for the betterment of the Empire, and we should all thank them. Other people, perhaps me, think that the Scorpion <laughs> could on a day-to-day basis, be looked at more like the Mafia, where they have their own internal code and a very strict loyalty within the organization. And maybe sometimes they do things that help the community, like keep out drug dealers, but mostly they're bad guys on a day-to-day basis. Not, you know, evil with a capital E, but a villain clan. And I think that the portrayal of the Scorpion started out much closer to that, and I feel like it's shifted over the years in part because of how the Scorpion player base views their own clan and their frequent desire to view their clan as more noble than it was originally portrayed. But 
that's my generalized sort of take. How about yours, Fred? Well, I think I'll start by saying most clans, in the eyes of the player base generally, and the eyes of the particular clans in question, have a tendency towards ennobling their respective clans. I don't think Scorpion is an exception to that. Part of it is players like gravitating to being the good guys. Understandable. Part of it is over 20 years of the setting, there are more players who have learned about the setting from word of mouth from other players rather than actually having played through the original material. And so when you get the Cliff Notes version, sometimes nuance is lost. I think it is accurate. I think an accurate examination of the Scorpion starts with the nature of the original task or duty or role of the Scorpion as assigned by Hante and accepted by Bayushi, right? Which is to protect the Emperor from threats he, and at the time, John Wick was writing, you know, a patriarchal setting, he cannot see. The significant part here is you have to assume that Hante and Bayushi knew the implications of what this duty would be, right? And the canon supports that. And the issue is, the Scorpion do a lot of covert or dirty or otherwise controversial things, right? They lie, they deceive, they betray, they deal with the underworld. They have what they call Shinobi, which is totally different from Lying Darkness Ninja, and is totally different from Ninja as a concept, they'll say. And so on and so on and so on. The problem is, and I think this is something that's a nuance-driven analysis, is when you routinely have to make moral compromise, that affects the way you think. It affects the way you relate to people. It affects the way your clan looks at the world. And so, for example, the scorpion duty means at some point you may need to frame someone who's innocent. Because, for whatever reason, the interests of the empire require that the scorpion frame someone who is innocent, quote-unquote, for the greater good of the empire. The problem is, in order to be able to frame someone at a critical moment, you need people who are experienced at this kind of behavior. Because a good con job or frame job, you probably don't want to trust a sensitive issue to someone who's doing it for the first time. So in order to hone the very skills they need when the Empire relies on the Scorpion, the Scorpion have to do things that are dishonorable at least, or cowardly, or treasonous, or whatever else you want to call as a negative descriptor, in non-critical situations. So there are going to be times where Scorpion murders people to stay in practice. And you could argue that this is all necessary in order to make sure that their skills are honed for when it really matters. Or you could say it was a murder. And when a clan is constructed around, well, some sacrifices, both of ourselves and others without their consent, have to be made. Those are just sacrifices that have to be made. It's part of the cost of doing business. But that mentality itself lends itself to a particular kind of small c corruption. It lends itself to a kind of self-righteous self-justification. So 
Are the Scorpion villainous? Yes. Are they sometimes necessary because only they have the practice and the willingness to do certain things? Yes. Is it as simple as them being anti-heroes or heroes or villains? I don't think so, right? I think there are definitely times where the Scorpion are just flat out the villains. Flat out. And more so than other clans. And that is part of the sacrifice by Yushi himself knew he'd be making. That he and his followers would not only be mistrusted by the rest of the Empire, but that that mistrust would be fundamentally for good reasons. They would deserve that mistrust. So Bayushi knew that in a way, his followers would be giving up something that samurai treat as valuable. You've given up something that's fundamental to being a complete person. And so all of those criticisms would be entirely valid. Which is actually really, and, and that enough, if enough generations went by, his descendants wouldn't even realize that that was what they had given up because of the culture of the clan, right? The clan doesn't value honor. It understands honor as a commodity that can be manipulated, but on the whole, the Scorpion is not an honorable clan. And for many of them, it's so far off the radar that they don't even appreciate what they've given up, although others completely appreciate what they've given up. And I'd like to think that in the setting, Hante and Bayushi knew exactly that that was what was going to happen, and Hante knew the magnitude of the task and the sacrifice and the burden he was putting on Bayushi and Bayushi's followers. And Bayushi, out of loyalty, said yes. So in one sense, the Scorpion transcend an easy analysis, but I do think the Scorpion clan, to a certain extent, is in the business of betrayal. Which doesn't mean they're going to betray anyone on a whimsical or pointless basis. But, for example, the Scorpion think, yeah, we need to control the drug trade. Because we need the money. Because there are other operations that require money, and we're not as wealthy as Crane or Mantis. We've got to earn it somehow. This vice represents, you know, supply and demand. Might as well be us. And that way, when we need to send these ninja to kill someone, we don't have to worry about where we're going to get the money from. And the Scorpion, internally, would assume, of course, we're going to send ninja for good reasons. Right? But you don't... The Scorpion, as a clan, is very both... They encourage free thinking, except for when an order is given. So if I say, kill that guy, and don't tell you how, my expectation is you will find an appropriate means that fits the clan goals and my orders. But I don't expect you to second-guess the order. In fact, I expect you to follow it. And so you get a clan that is very willing to accept from immediate superiors, you got to do this, and you're not allowed to ask why. You're not allowed to second-guess, you're not allowed to critically examine, and if you disagree with it, that's nice, do it anyways. Which, to some extent, is true of every clan, but for Scorpion in particular, because you're asking people to do things that most samurai would find reprehensible or abhorrent. There is a very particular kind of don't ask questions once the order comes down 
that lends itself to very monstrous behavior. Um, so I think more often than not, the scorpion are villains. And they would say, we have to be, because there are going to be times where you need a villain. Does that make them wrap around into being heroic? I think people can, dis- can respectfully and in a principled way disagree on that. But there are times, absolutely, where the scorpion are doing something because it furthers their interests. And if you force them to justify it, they would say, well, our interests are those of the Empire. But every client uses that argument. We have been given a duty by by Hante, or and that has been confirmed by subsequent dynasties. And yeah. a strong Scorpion clan is therefore necessary for the health of the Empire. Therefore, then when this strengthens the Scorpion clan, it, yes. uh, although of course on a right on a day to day basis, I, I think you'd agree that the the individual courtier blackmailing or you know Shinobi doing his sneaky things is not performing that sort of mental analysis he's just this is what you're told it's yeah. it's much higher up the chain that, that that sort of thought might be had in fact one of the reasons the scorpion emphasized loyalty so much is the temptation to betray is so high right they're 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 bailiwick their their routine business and the the things that they have to do involve getting people to trust you and then betraying them and the Scorpion need to be able to rely on their operatives to do what the Scorpion tells them to do, because these are things that the general societal values of the Empire are, tell you are wrong and are unforgivable and cannot be justified. And the Scorpion needs you to do it anyways. So they very much encourage a kind of cult of personality, if you will, or an unquestioned obedience, which is why... In that realm, when so many people dislike you, and you know deep down they're right to do so, the scorpion values their friends. But at the same time, and this is where interesting tension comes in, I may value my friends, but if I'm a scorpion, if my superior says, kill your best friend, there's no room to wiggle out of that. Right? That's where good drama and good tragedy comes in, because... Uh, the Scorpion would say, yeah, it doesn't matter if your friend has been good to you and good to the clan. We need him dead. Now, one of the things that can come up for you guys with the story is that there is, you know, to, to the extent that anything in L5R exists objectively, there, there's sort of an objectively how the setting is, mm-hmm. and there is a perception among the players of what's going on sure. with the setting house and those may sync up and they may sync up more or less depending on which clan it is looking at which other clan yes i'm reminded going back to the first edition way of the scorpion where there is an entire section in that rpg book about trying to come up with ways for why on earth there would be a scorpion player character yes when just everyone hates the scorpion, and why would anyone ever willingly work with them? Yes. And obviously we aren't anywhere near that anymore, mm-hmm. and I don't think we would ever go to back, back to that. But do you think this is one of those situations where you guys as the story team would want to try 
to pull player perception back towards the quote-unquote objective reality of the setting, or is this one of those situations where you just kind of go with it? I grapple with that a lot with several clans. Scorpion is not the only one where players generally see things one way. The players of the clan in particular see it another, and narrative needs go in yet another direction. I am okay with softening the disdain for Scorpion in setting because I think it's more workable. If no one if no one ever trusts a Scorpion unless they need something terrible done, it's actually too obvious. Right? Even in setting, then you'd you'd wonder why hey, I was seen walking away from Bayushi so and so's like office. I must be planning something nefarious, because everyone knows you only talk to a Bayushi if you want something nefarious done. That's too obvious, right? I think in the setting now, there is the Scorpion are positioned as those people you talk to when you need a certain, we'll call it pragmatic skill set, or they just happen to be in a position of authority and power, right? Like, I, I want to remind people that the clans are very strong, but they're not monolithic and homogenous. And that, you know, it's entirely normal that, hey, maybe I have some a cousin who married into the Scorpion, or that uncle married into the Scorpion, and this cousin is related to me. There is nothing in, inappropriate about two people who are relatives, you know, discussing things that are of their small f family, family's interests. That's completely within the setting, too. So to that extent, I feel the softening of clan lines and the softening of this clan wants this. Therefore, they are always going to be opposed to every member of that clan everywhere. Because Rokugan is a little more complicated than that, right? But at the same time, it's easy to generally say people always are a little guarded around a scorpion. They're not trust. They, they're a little bit untrust untrusted because the scorpion wore a mask to remind you that you can't trust me. Right? It's clan policy uh, as an open reminder so that when you fall for it, it's your fault. So, in answer to the question, I'm okay with softening it a bit, but one thing that has unfortunately kind of come as a bit of a consequence is uh, the perception of fear of the scorpion and fear of scorpion retribution has also softened a bit. Uh, and part of that is over, maybe not the sh near past, but the medium past, uh, scorpion players communicated quite vocally that they weren't that interested in pursuing old vendetta. And that is a change from, say, first ed of the RPG and Clan War, where the Scorpion were defined by pursuing vendettas. And I think we're moving back towards more players wanting the Scorpion to revisit old wrongs and writing them, they'd say. Because I like the idea, narratively, that if you offend the Scorpion, they might not get revenge for four generations. I guess there's a, a couple things I, I think with that is it may be that there's less of an emphasis on that because if I recall correctly, part of the function of that aspect of the Scorpion was to try to answer the question that 
Slavin always asks, which is, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny because there's some players might, over the last five years, so they might have asked this about the spider, and people used to ask it about the scorpion, which is, why haven't the other clans just killed them off? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of one of the examples that unless your clan is committing to some sort of complete and total massacre of the entire scorpion clan, like whatever it is that you do, they are going to get back at you for it, no matter how small it may have been, and that that just isn't there anymore, because you're, the story is not presented in a the scorpion are entirely and completely despised, such that no one would even really want to talk to them. Right. And so that's not there anymore, and I guess I'd also partially say, isn't, isn't there kind of an increased interest in vengeance, partially because that was thrown out there as a as a path? Yeah. Because I'm kind of curious, and I'll have one limited question, and then I'll follow up. So you you talk about in the medium term, Scorpion players vocally expressing not being interested in in vengeance, and yeah. I can think of the race temptation example. Yeah. Are you thinking of something other than that? Or? Well, that was one example, but I've also had conversations and followed forums and so on, where there was an undercurrent of we're just not interested in pursuing old wrongs that was the message that i was get, uh, being given and um and i do think player demands change over time which is also relevant right uh, sure and it could have been at the time there was a definite we want to win the race but there have been times in not only the race where i would dangle hey these guys wronged you at this point do you want to go after them and depending on the player base, there was no interest, right? Because some players, and I, and I don't mean this in a pejorative in any sense, some players like their clans at conflict and other players like their clans working with other clans. And the specific composition of that varies from year to year and player base to player base. And there are pros and cons to both, narratively and, and game-wise. But I do think of the clans, the more inclined to kind of dwell on a wrong and get them back, one of the clans that is most likely to do so is Scorpion. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree with... Oh, oh, I thought you were saying the players, which... Player-wise, I'm not so sure, right? I think Lion players are probably traditionally most likely to go after someone for this character or this clan wronged us. But I'm not sure which player base is most likely to do that right now. Might be Mantis. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, they and the Scorpion have had their uh, little spat this Kote season. I, they, it's also helped, as far as that goes, that the Mantis have had Kote wins to spare to engage in that. Yes. That just would not have been as much of a thing if Scorpion and Mantis were not winning 6-10 Kote. Yes. So, I guess that's one of the things where you story team guys have to come in and write stuff for the clans that aren't winning all the Kote. Yeah, that's exactly true. I thought we did a pretty good job of that when, like, we worked on the first batch of Kote fix. There was, of course, a focus on the clans that did make picks, but and all, always, you know, if there were victim clans, them too, but we are trying to work in other clans where it makes sense and can move things forward. 
back on the vendors thing, I, I feel like probably every clan player base to some extent would be less grudge holding than the actual clan because even yes. if within a particular moment they're yes. cranky, I Yes. Two countries go to you know a real full on war. Yes. The citizens of those countries are probably going to be somewhat distrustful of each other for decades. Yes, generations. And in Rokugan, clearly in setting, that would be the case. But players are yes. not. Yeah, we just players just yes. don't hold grudges that long yes. over over stuff that fictional characters do to each other. Yes, absolutely. And that's something where it can be at times difficult to get players really motivated into wars. My general rule now is it takes time. And I think it's doable, but it, there is. I have. I recognize that sometimes there is a reluctance to rock the boat, and that players are a little bit reluctant to get into get into it with another clan, unless you know. There's a certain threshold at which point they'll buy in, and that threshold is higher than it would be for the characters in the setting. Yeah, and again, right? It can matter exactly what the provocation is what the plan is what the player base is but i on the scorpion the other thing i would i would kind of wonder i find it's interesting that isn't there also something of an issue of what it is that you're trying to get the not you i guess not you personally but maybe sometimes it is you personally trying to get the scorpion to buy into as a a vengeance target for example i Back in the race for the throne, right? One of them was get back at Saruchi for the events that led to the creation of the Saruchi, which I, and I think a reasonable number of Scorpion players, kind of did not really look at as the this, Saruchi this betraying the Scorpion. If anything, it was kind of the Scorpion betraying Saruchi. Sure. And right now, when that's one of their official options for them to choose as a path, it's not like there's even a clear choice for them to make other than the Aramasu stuff that mm-hmm. has kind of gotten it has problems now because everybody knows the Mantis are going to get whacked so they don't really make much of a vengeance target <laughs> the other yes. discussion point you see at least publicly is the Lion because it's the Hot War or the Colot who again it's not like the Colot did anything to the Scorpion that's taking vengeance for the Scorpion players just want to smash the coal out as much as possible. It's not like there is some three or four generation old slight that the Scorpion player base has to latch onto. Almost anything it feels like you guys have to come to them and either make it up or try to point to something that people didn't really perceive as a betrayal and then try to make it one. That can be an issue. There is at least one other clan candidate that I think if you go through the setting and I connect the dots for people, they would immediately, while they may disagree because they may not want to go after this clan, uh, I would argue objectively there's at least one other clan where I can say, here, point A, B, C, D, and E means Scorpion have a good reason to try to destroy this clan or at least get revenge or something like that. But I don't really want to go too far down that particular path unless they actually select that, because I kind of want to see 
what I'd like to do, and again, this is all subject to internal discussion and so on, is offer them vengeance targets with short spiels as to why this clan is someone that, or this group, or this family, or this person is someone that Scorpion has a particular bone to pick against. But I, I would argue there's at least one, and most likely several more, because I'm like, you know, dwelling on the possibility that they do select that, where I don't need to create or any canon, I just need to connect the dots in a way that people can see. And I normally... And, but most clans have reasons, have good in-setting historical reasons to have problems with every other clan. It's just a matter of pulling back out the right stuff at the right time. <laughs> well, you, you, you guys certainly seem to, to do that with uh, the Trader's Grove <laughs> yeah. fiction. I knew that's where it would end up when I put it into a fiction. I knew that there was a chance of that. You, you knew that two days later the Mantis were going to win a, a Kote and try to burn it down? <laughs> that I was expecting as a possibility, but not a... I didn't think it would crystallize quite that quickly. But I did think um, people would remember it. And it's funny because the first time this came up in the setting, it was heated, but it wasn't heated in quite the same wildfire way it is now. And it just takes, you know, the right player base and the right mood at the right time. It also, again, helps that there is a... Right now, the the Cote structure permits of yes. smack yes. somebody else around, so, and then you yes. can have back and forths and yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, but, so we'll see. I'm my my guess is you're not going to get to come up with vengeance targets for them. I don't think so. It's funny because there are. I am pretty sure most of the. Most of the path choices that I think would be most interesting, or that I have the most aha, this would be a great idea, will not be the ones picked. But, you know, I've got contingencies from most of the plan paths charted out already. But yeah, there are some where I think there are different takes and different spins that are more interesting than people realize they would be. But at the same time, I want people to choose what, what like moves them. I don't want this to be, Fred thinks you should do this. Because that kind of defeats the point, right? Unless it's what I want, and then you should totally do it because it's what Fred wants. Exactly. Yes. In fact, you should just assume, go back and listen to the last two episodes, assume that Fred agrees with me, and do it for Fred. Do it for Fred. <laughs> Fred has not listened to the last two episodes, so he has no idea what he has just recommended to you. But <laughs> and Fred's not allowed to have nice things, so I think you've just defeated your own like goal. <laughs> That's all right. I I think there's a healthy number of mine that I already know are not going to to happen. Yeah. So, but there's some of them that I think will happen. So we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Uh, we're not supposed to talk about Onyx Paths anyway. I told people right at the start yes. we weren't going to. Which just means that'll wait for another session later, I assume, but that's fine. There's a lot of things up in the air, and yeah. there's a reasonable chance that by the time, not just reasonable, there's a very good chance that by the time this is up, they'll have actually posted 
the official yes. things that people are going to vote I, on, which will have modifications, which will yes. thus invalidate the entire conversation, and also, I'm guessing, make you dance around not being able to disclose things that you know or think are going to end up in those, but that that's not public yet, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I can, I can say that right now I am reviewing the multitude of fan-submitted stuff. I'm not the only person reviewing, but I'm one of them, and yeah. I suspect by the time this goes up, the revised drafts will be up for people to vote on. Okay, so any nuance of the Scorpion portrayal and such that we we missed there before we move on to our next topic? No, I think we're good. Obviously, if people have follow-up questions, they can ask them, and... It's not like you can't get in touch with me as you need it. And, and then maybe two years from now, we'll get around to doing another one of these. Yeah, well, you're not at on this year, so... Yes, once again, let me express the burning evilness. You think the spider are evil? You think Ken Pecky is evil? No, no, my brother's scheduling his wedding for the Saturday of Gen Con for the L5R <laughs> 20th anniversary. That, <laughs> that is evil. So... I'm just saying, I'm going to have my own people, but someone better make sure to set aside for me a copy of whatever the 20th anniversary party swag box is. I demand it. I demand it. Okay. The next thing, I well, we had a couple of questions that were on this topic, and I know this is something that has come up and been discussed on the boards. Sure. And that is the defection of the Agasha... Yes. To the Phoenix during the, let's say, you're an official AEG person, so we have to call it the War of Spirits, right? I don't know the details of that. Uh, I always call it the War Against the Darkness, but that's just because I think it's more destructive. Oh, oh. Uh, you know what? I'm muddling that up. That's right. They left during the War Against the Darkness, Yeah. but it wasn't until after the War of of Spirits. I just, I think you guys just aren't allowed to call it Spirit Wards because of a really terrible trademark lawsuit. You know, that's a good question. I should someday ask. Uh, but, yeah, that's my understanding through the grapevine, too. Some guy had mm-hmm. an online card game that you would have never heard of. No one in the universe would have any knowledge of, except for the fact that he sued Wizards, because right. Wizards owned Legend of the Five Rings at the time that this and happened. That and, had, and, like, his online CCG was called Spirit Wars or something like that. Sure, sure. So... Then he sued, and of course, I mean, they, they as, as often with these things, it's there's a press release when it issued, and then nothing when it's settled. Yep. And I can only presume, based on observing actions, that part of this settlement was that AE was that Wizards at the time, now AEG, has to officially refer to this as the War of the Spirits sure. instead of like it's never called Spirit Wars if you look at RPG products or things sure. like that, and. And I think you might not be able to actually do a Spirit Wars setting book. Is that is that like one of the few settings that didn't get its own time-specific book in the RPG at some point? You'd have to ask Rob Hobart. Yeah, anyhow. Okay, so the short version, which I'll let you add in details as applicable, was, let's see, Hitomi was crazy. And was killing a lot of people, including a lot of dragon. This led the Agasha 
not all of the Agasha, but the the large majority of the Agasha to leave the dragon and join the Phoenix. Yes. The Agasha Daimyo, who was Agasha Tomori, yes. stayed with the Agasha. Yes. And Agasha Tomori was one of the Steel Chrysanthemum's strongest ally and about and almost the only dragon who did anything during the Spirit Wars. Yes. And so as part of the peace treaty, he got his own family name, supposedly as a reward or something like that, to the Seal Chrysanthemum, but then the Phoenix got the actual Agasha name. Yes. So the sort of questions are, was it really so bad that the Agasha had to leave? Why is it that the Phoenix were willing to take these traitors in? Why did they go to the Phoenix specifically rather than someone else? Why did the Phoenix get the Agasha name? Rather than yes, the dragon. Yes. See what other? Let me just continue to load up the seven thousand aspects of this topic. Up. <laughs> Why isn't there more continuing antagonism between the two clans over this betrayal in story? And I would also note that why why don't dragon players get cranky about this? Because for the most part, I don't think we do. Maybe maybe they don't anymore, but they did for a while. Uh, yeah. And then I guess the one question which is might be the hardest to answer mm-hmm. that was is my personal question rather than questions of others. Not from an in setting perspective, but from an out of setting perspective, why did the Phoenix, out of all the clans in the world, get yet another Shugenja family tacked on? Wouldn't it have been narratively more interesting if they had done anything else but join the Phoenix? Okay. And then, go. Okay, let's start with me pointing out something that many players wouldn't know offhand, which is I wasn't working on the story at the time any of this was written. So a lot of my work is often coming up with my best reconstruction and interpolation of what other people intended and or what makes sense. Uh, The Hidden Emperor arc in particular is pretty sparse on notes, So a lot of this is going to be me putting forward what I think is the best explanation for events, where there is no direct or very little direct canon treatment of those events and why. That's the caveat, mostly for a full disclosure purpose. So first off, yes, Agasha Tamori was, as far as I can tell, the major acting dragon during the time after Hitomi's ascension. And he fully supported the Steel Chrysanthemum, and it appears that Dragon as a whole was heavily influenced by him politically. So that Dragon following him, he was following the Steel Chrysanthemum. There was some support for the Steel Chrysanthemum from the Dragon as a result. How much? Not sure, but we know that at least anyone under his direct command, probably, right? At the end of that war, Toturi is essentially forced politically by Hante XVI to recognize the Tamori family as a giant screw you to Toturi. The creation of that family is intended as an insult to the emperor, the kind of insult that you can't directly respond to, but is obviously intended to get under your skin. Agasha Tamori himself, by that point in time, is at least tainted, maybe lost, (laughs) and is 
very, very much obsessed. And the thing with mental taint symptoms is they warp your thinking. And so projection slash estimation slash whatever you want to call it, at that point in time, Tamori doesn't want the Agasha back. He doesn't consider them worthy. Right? And Hante the 16th really wants to maximize the damage or insult or, whatever, or disrespect to Toturi. So rather than asking for the Agasha back, because by that point it's old hat too, they create a new family. And Tamori thinks this family is way better than that old family because that family is a bunch of traitors. The fact that he himself bears that name doesn't really occur to him because that kind of cognitive dissonance is beyond him at that point because, like I said, he's really, really tainted. And yeah, there is an interesting question of how someone so heavily tainted and so rage-filled and irrational was still in a position of decision-making authority in Dragon that has not been explored on screen. That's why the dragon ended up with the Tamori rather than the Agasha. Uh, narratively, why did the Agasha join the Phoenix in particular and not some other clan? I'm not sure, but my best guess in terms of in-setting reasons is at that point in time, Phoenix was inviting and welcoming Shugenja from everywhere because they were rebuilding. Right? You may recall the Stronghold Eternal Halls of the Shiva, which is infamous because it was insanely powerful. <laughs> and its mechanic was every Shugenja in your deck is aligned to your clan until it got MRP'd. And that gives you a possible explanation for why the Agasha joined the Phoenix, because the Phoenix were looking for more people. Plus, if you're a Shugenja family, the kind of natural fit is the Phoenix. That's an insetting reason, it's not a narrative justification. Right? I think there is a good argument to be made that maybe it's more interesting if narratively the Agasha joined a different family, or even the Naga, who were also against Hitomi at that point in time. But the insetting reasons I actually think are pretty good. The Phoenix were actively looking for more people to fill the ranks because they'd lost so many as a result of cleaning house at the end of Clan War. Why are they allowed to keep the family name? Interesting question. Because I think the easiest explanation might have been, well, the Agasha are allowed to disband into the other families. The best reconstruction that makes the most sense that I can come up with right now is Tamori didn't want the family name back. Hante didn't want the family name back. And the Dragon Clan probably did not want to press the issue that strongly. Because in Rokugan, the best way to deal with scandal is to quietly bury it. And the dragon did not want people looking too carefully at what Hitomi did during the Clan War and during the, the Hidden Emperor arc. Because a lot of what she did, even if you interpret it very generously to her, would be controversial. If you are less generous to her, some of it is like, really? You let her do that? And if you're unkind to her... She's a villain. So within the setting, the dragon, while they're not very politically active, they're not stupid. Pushing a political issue when the reason the issue started, Hitomi's leadership, 
has a lot of grains of truth to it in terms of being things that the other clans would be very critical of, isn't a position of power from which to try to get political concessions, so quietly let it drop. In setting, for many years, the Tamori had a bone to pick with the Phoenix generally and the Agasha in particular. In setting, a lot of that was ameliorated or made less active by uh, Tamori Shaitung and Isawa Nakamuro getting married. I would think within the confines of an RPG or within the setting as a whole, there is probably still the Phoenix no better than to send an Agasha as a diplomat to a Tamori and vice versa. But the Tamori family, it's an interesting microcosm. I think the Tamori family, in general, in the setting, is extremely judgmental, extremely critical, and the one thing that bothers them more than anything else in the world, speaking very broadly here, is they want to be able to go after the Agasha full bore politically and socially for being traitors, but they can't because they have two traitors at the start of their family line. And that bothers Satomori. Like, no one is saying, no one in the Empire actively digs them for this, but everyone knows. There are two Tamori who both became Dark Oracle of Fire, one of whom supported the wrong side in an Empire Civil War. Um, the family's history is known to the Empire. All of that undercuts the ability of the family to really pursue the Agasha for what the Tamori family thinks is the many traitor, you know, the traitorous crimes of the Agasha. And they are coming from not the high ground. And it bothers them a lot, which causes them to lash out even more at the Agasha. But they can't in a way that provokes a lot of public scrutiny. So there's just, just this disquiet at a problem that they can't fix. Because the Tamori, because of that worldview, are really critical of themselves for something that they know isn't their fault, but because there is inherited responsibility, is totally their fault that they can't fix. Which I think is actually a wonderful narrative hook. Because really, if you seem back to the future and, you know, if you call Marty McFly chicken, he's going to do something. <laughs> In a weird way, all it takes to set off a Tamori, if you do it right, is just to say, my lineage goes back to this, you know, founder. What about yours? It goes back to Tamori Shaitung, right? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> right? And, and the problem, so it's, it's really, it's actually really interesting because in the Empire, no one is blaming the Tamori directly for the actions of their founder. But your name is inherited from your ancestors. So all of them, on some level, have the social responsibility for their founder. Who, who, like we were discussing, Hitomi's controversial. Agasha Tomori is not controversial. He's a traitor. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts. And while he's been killed, he never corrected his errors. So in a way, in the, in the highest honor and politest society, all of his crimes... There's been no redemption for them, and there can never be redemption for them because the person who committed them is dead in an unrepentant way. He was executed from the mindset of justice within the empire. And that digs at the Tamori family all the time. 
And I love it. Like, that's a really interesting, engaging narrative hook. Because it's guilt. And it's guilt that you can see why they hold it, and you can see why they are not personally responsible for it, and yet as a family they totally are. But for all of those reasons, the dragon collectively haven't really pursued the Agasha issue that strongly. Uh, particularly because the one family that could make the strongest claim to being wronged is the one that also has the weakest hand to play in this political like game. And many of the other dragon families just don't care that much. So that's that would be my explanation as to why it doesn't cause more heated debate on screen, right? And the big one is the hot-tempered Tap Tamori probably spend a lot of time, you know, doing the equivalent of punching the heavy bag because they can't make more of a scene without dishonoring themselves because it just invites people to talk about Agasha Tamori more. Yeah, because he, he was not very long ago, really, in the setting. No, it's not. I feel like out of the setting, I mean, partially this it ties into what, what we talked about in the Vengeance thing. It's just players only just only hold grudges so long. There's an awful lot of L5R players right now who you know would have never known the Agasha as anything but a Phoenix family, and we're talking also about a spat that probably involves the least important families of both of the two clans involved. Pretty much. And I suspect that the fact that since this happened, the clans fought a war kind of wrapped up what there was after yeah. after that, you know, because they in Gold Edition, the two clans ended up fighting each other. In fact, I probably the most common Agasha slash Tamori related thing coming up that I hear again. And okay, partially this is because I do the show with Jay. Yep. Is so how was it that Shaitung beat all of the elemental masters at once? Come on! <laughs> like, Rich and I have talked about this, right? Part of it was, Shaitung's goal was we all die. That was her goal. She was totally in a, I can't win against all five, but I can make sure they don't walk away, and me for five, totally good trade. Second thing is, they weren't expecting the involvement or the presence of the Dark Oracle of Fire in those caves underneath. And third thing is, it's written as a battle where Shaitung is clearly in a position of advantage, and then the battle's interrupted. I haven't asked Rich how he would have ended it if he didn't intend on it going down the Dark Oracle of Fire path, right? Speaking narratively, you probably don't have her confront the entire council if you don't plan on having that intervention, because no one wants to read, and then they teamed up on her and she died. <laughs> right? And I think what I can do here is kind of make allusions to other media where you have those fight scenes between one and five where Z1 is winning initially and winning in a fairly commanding way until one of them like grabs an arm. Or in like pro wrestling, you get hit by a chair from behind. Or because when it's one on five, you have to be, you have to keep winning. Because as soon as that momentum stops and you slow down, you lose. And that's how it is in, you know, a lot of group fight scenes 
in cinema, in TV, and so on, right? So could Shai Tung's goal was as many people die as possible, and she was totally prepared to be one of the casualties. Plus, there were individual members of the council that she probably could have beaten in a fight one-on-one. Because, and I think this has been supported in the canon generally, the Tamori is one of the more militant and combat-oriented families, right? And you might be, you might or might not be a better Shugenja, but a combat Shugenja is going to defeat a Shugenja, even a more skilled overall Shugenja, in a combat situation. That just, that just stands to reason, right? And someone who is driven by the desire to inflict harm and has had that as kind of one of her career goals for much of her life, i.e. Shaitung, is naturally going to have more aptitude for a fight than someone who's fundamentally a scholar. Which is not to say, you know, take anything away from Shaitung, because going one on five is really gutsy. But... I do think the idea that she's more powerful than all five at the same time is a little bit overdone. Right. I I certainly think she could, like, particularly at that point in time, there's every reason she to believe she could have just beaten Nakamura straight up, as an example. Because Nakamura, among other things, was, again, not particularly combat-oriented. Plus, Shaitung is portrayed as a really, really, really skilled Shugenja for her generation. And it doesn't necessarily follow that the council is automatically the most powerful of their generation, right? They probably are. They very much cannot be uh, counted out. They might very well be the most insightful or most skilled of their generation, but they are not necessarily the most raw power. And, and all canon accounts show that Shaitung could just, like, she could bring the hammer down. Partially because her threshold to believe it was necessary to go all out was lower than the council, which was generally more reserved, right? Although Tairuko was also very much... Tairuko and Shaitong, if they weren't, like, if they didn't really hate each other, would probably be best friends. (laughs) They had very similar approaches to a lot of things. All right. Any other thoughts on that general subject? Not particularly. I think I've canvassed the main reasons why the Agasha issue just wasn't a big one politically. Because, like I said, the dragon did not really want people examining the details of what happened with them internally during that period of time. Because even the most understanding of the other clans is going to have a hard time accepting your clan champion killed her uncle to turn him into ink. Which is, I think, I think you'd agree, the canon is very clear that that's what happened. And I think it's also fair to say that a reasonable interpretation of the setting is most clans would at least do a double take. (laughs) Particularly if, you know, you have a detailed audit and, oh, her main advisor and mentor at the time was Kokujin. I thought that guy was totally on the up and up. Right? Did I miss something? No? You know, because of those reasons, it is rational for the dragon to not want people to look at that. This is embarrassing. It's a scandal, potentially. Why are you going to create 
a set of events that's going to cause, like, because if there are hearings or court debates about this, the Agasha are going to say things like, well, he told me he just killed her uncle. And the dragon don't really want people thinking too carefully about that. Even if you believe you will be vindicated, it's just not the sort of thing that, that makes for a good political step. Well, I found some astrological charts here that show that the Asawa are all cursed, probably because they're trying to research blood magic right now. They're probably contributing to that Kenpeki thing. You can't trust anything they say. Exactly. What? But, <laughs> but, you know, like, what do you do when, like, so I actually feel that in setting, there are very good reasons why the dragon never really pursued it that strongly. But there's a kind of reasons that are very difficult to bring out in fiction without it looking like an info dump. Yes, especially since they're now the underlying offense are, are decades old at this point. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have other listener submissions from ages sure. ago, but um, we're not going to get to them because this is, this is uh, I think, a nice episode chunk. So sorry, okay. people who add questions less suited to Fred and I rambling. But thanks for coming on and talking to us again, Fred. My pleasure. All right. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at strangeassembly.com. You can download or subscribe to the podcast there. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. If you visit one of those sites, we'd always appreciate a review or a rating. It helps people find the show. You can follow us. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter or come visit us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly. You can also contact me directly. I always like to hear from our listeners and readers. That's chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Fred Wan, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.